Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer Podcast, brought to you from NAMPA and the guys at Wild and Exposed. I am Dawn Wilson, coming to you as the first episode as past president. So I am also joined tonight by Jason, Mike, and Ron. So welcome, guys. Good to see you. It's been a little while since we've recorded. It's, it's been, been a long while since I've been on a podcast, but I've edited all of them, so I've seen you your pretty faces a lot. <laughs> Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, you're talking to Don. <laughs> no, it's all I y'all. I don't know about that. And you, it seems, sounds like everybody's had quite several adventures this summer. Um, you know, you it sounded like you guys were leading, leading trips up with um, Africa and up in the Arctic. You know, it's... Mike, you had a, a really big adventure up there. I haven't heard too much about specific details. Actually, I haven't heard much about either one. I guess we've all been just that busy that we haven't even had a chance to catch up on that. Well, if you tune into the last episode of Wild and Exposed, we did a little breakdown on a little bit of what I could talk about about the Arctic, but we did a lot of stuff with Jason, which was really cool. So there is that to catch up, but I think we're going to talk a little bit more tonight about some of the preparation for those trips, right? Absolutely. I think that would be a great thing now that everybody is, I shouldn't say everybody, but I know a lot of people are back to more international travel. They're getting back to some of their big trips that were postponed the last couple of years. It might be really helpful information to kind of, to help people. How do they, how do you prep? How do you plan? How do you pack for, for these big trips? And you guys have very different trips. I mean, Africa is, you know, it's hot. You have to do a lot of prep work in regards to vac- vaccinations and things on those, that level. Mike, you were up in the Arctic where it's completely a much colder climate, um, although it's not too bad in the summertime. But but then you have you also have bugs to deal with up there as well. Yeah, there's all kinds of things. I mean, do we want to get into it now or do you guys want to catch up with what Ron and Jason have been up to? Well, Ron... <laughs> has has not been filming very far from town so that um kind of limits the preparation necessary actually i get up throw on some sweatpants and and go jump in the vehicle (laughs) the biggest preparation is making sure that the tripod is set up in the back of the pilot because i i've been filming burrowing owls and got this information from a local landowner uh but they were already fledged i was we talked about this a little bit. They were already fledged. And so I could not just go out and set up a blind. I had to um, be mobile. So I'd stay in the vehicle and just put a blanket over in the vehicle. So kind of concealed my movement and just try to get near the holes that they were occupying at the time and, and film from there. So the tripod was in the back of the, in the back of the vehicle, um, which causes some problems because you know mike talks about it all the time with his experience filming and and you've hopefully all heard doug gardner talk about his boat and how he has to basically you know use the four hydraulic pillars to anchor it to the bottom of the swamp when he's filming in the swamp it's the same thing with a vehicle every time you move your camera moves because you're not on a 
you know, an absolutely stable platform, you've got the suspension of the vehicle and just little movements can cause a lot of movement in camera, especially when you're filming with a long lens. So there was a little bit of preparation, I guess, going into that and some thought process that had to change on the fly because I didn't necessarily think about that initially. You know, I don't, I don't think filming from a vehicle is something that you could do with two people, quite honestly, because you'd, you'd have to be in constant communication. And I don't think both people trying to get footage or images is going to be conducive to getting stable video. So <laughs> yeah, things think... as simple as running the engine can. Yeah, can exactly. Yep. Yep. You know, one good thing is I didn't have to worry about any heat shimmer because it was nice you know, cool mornings. The I drove out there with my windows down. The heat or temperature in the vehicle was the same as outside. So that's that why not you were wearing your sweatpants? With. That, no, I wore my sweatpants just because that was the first thing that I saw when I got up. <laughs> and I knew I wasn't going to be on the ground. So, yeah. And well, I'm glad you found a spot. I'm glad you found a spot, Ron. I know you a couple of months ago you asked me about burrowing owl spots, and it's been it's been several years since I have been out spending any time yeah. with them. This was a surprise one. I will say that it was just you know a landowner that knew I was a photographer. He wanted an image of the owls on his place, and he said, "Hey, I, I just saw one. I haven't seen them all summer. Just saw one come out, and I went out, and there's there were six on his place, and." I got to film five of them. So it's, it's again, nice to have those networks. And you do seem to have a very good network in Wyoming. It seems like it's a, it's a pretty good community up there. Yeah. Well, there's, yeah, I'm related to most of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking, Ron, when you were mentioning the, how it'd be difficult to film with two of you in the vehicle been there tried that more than once and most of the conversation goes something like would you hold still (laughs) you know back and forth and you yeah and you're (laughs) you know you want to be respectful they're trying to get images too but right you know you gotta you gotta not move buddy i don't even want you to breathe really (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's it's something you definitely want to do on your own if you're going to try to video at all yeah, and that definitely goes more. I think more for video than photography, but mm-hmm. but it's but even to photography to a point, you have to really. It'll never fail that the time that somebody decides to to sneeze or or readjust themselves or reach for a backpack is when you know you get two burrowing owls flying in with mm-hmm. mice or you know one midair transfers, you know some crazy thing like that. Yeah, and I will I will say some other preparation. I have been filming with that the canon r5 for quite a while and one thing that i've never done or taken advantage of is filming in crop mode and the important thing there is you're you're filming 4k on a full sensor because i don't i don't typically film 8k don't need to just yet so you're filming 4k on the on the full sensor but if you go into crop mode you're basically filming on the aspc sensor size so you're at 1.6 crop and you're still filming 4K. So it's it's pushing those pixels together. But instead of cropping in post and limiting the, you know, having to go from 4K to 1080, say, you're starting with a 1.6 crop on a 4K image. 
And so then you can afford to, to crop in even a little bit more And that the, um, the crop mode on video on that R5, uh, I was really, really impressed with the, uh, quality of the image that it produced. Well, it sounds like that, that worked out well. Do you still have more filming to do out there, Ron? I, I'm going to try, I've been trying to film, um, pronghorn are really hard, but I've gotten a lot of requests for pronghorn images from a periodical that I work with. And so I've been trying to film non-typical pronghorn and that's all going to come to an end here soon because hunting seasons are opening up. So I'm trying to get out and film as many pronghorns as I can. And I just found a, it's not, it's kind of a leucistic pronghorn. It's not albino. So I want to get out and get some footage of that young buck before hunting season, because then they get a lot more spooky and a lot more difficult. Archery opener in Wyoming was the 15th. And yeah, in some places. Gotcha. But yes, it, it's starting and, it's starting, and yeah. people are getting a lot more active. So it's going to get more difficult. And that, you know, that's one of the, one of the issues you have to deal with when you're not in a park environment, you're on private and public land in a state like Wyoming. That's something that you have to consider when trying to figure out where you're going to film. But so I'm trying to do that prior to, and then, you know, the owls probably will be leaving here soon. So I'm not a hundred percent certain. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking when you were mentioning about going out a little bit more with the owls, I've, they have to be coming up kind of, I always think at the end of August is when they start migrating mm -hmm. out. Yeah. So yeah, I don't have a lot more time. And then I, I told or asked the guy already if I could come back earlier next year and he's, he's all for it. We do have to pay attention to when he has his, he's got a pasture that he leases to these longhorn cattle that listen to the last podcast. You'll hear all about me whining <laughs> about these things, destroying my vehicle. But, um, I want to get in before the cows get moved in there so that I can leave a blind without having to worry about it getting destroyed as well. So, Yeah. I would imagine longhorns would think a blind would be a lot of fun. Oh yeah. I imagine <laughs> it would be in Nebraska by the time the longhorns and the wind got. It may not even be recognizable as a blind at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to, I want to I don't go... know what would be worse. Sorry. Go no. ahead, Ron. Or Jason. No, you're good. I want to go in there when the longhorns are in there, Ron. Yeah. Oh, no, they're they're photogenic. Absolutely, I bet. Could probably have some fun with them. Mm-hmm. When they're not... If you get the right your... sky and a wide angle, they're yeah. really photogenic, actually. Right, right. Them and Scottish Highlanders, scratches, but anyway. Scratches in your car. Yeah. And the, yeah. <laughs> yep. We can all have a scratch and dent sale on our gear and our vehicles. <laughs> right. <laughs> Is that when you take your kid's car? Yeah, it is next year. Exactly. <laughs> when I, take my... <laughs> I didn't even know they were there. So, but anyway, yeah, that was, you know, those things happened, but it, it was nice to have that opportunity presented to me. And I didn't ever imagine that they would have been where they were. It's a great spot. But they are, they're a fun bird to photograph. Mm -hmm. Yep. Don't see too many of them up here in the mountains, and I know that's part of why I haven't haven't been out to photograph them. They're a good couple of hours away. Yeah, great personality though. 
Yeah, one of the few owls that you can photograph during the day, although they are more active on the edges of the day. Mm -hmm. um, you can find them during the day. So, Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you prepped for your your big adventure that you had last month? Yeah, okay. Um, some, some key tips, some things, maybe lessons learned as to what did and didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll just mention one of the big ones that I learned in the process, which will help me a lot for future travel. And we did talk about this on the last show, but I think it's worth re-mentioning, um, was the trick of looking at multiple different airports where you might fly out of. Um, I, I gave the very specific example of flying out of Salt Lake City to Atlanta to Joburg was going to cost me $3,300 a person. And by simply looking to see what it might be out of Dallas or Houston or San Antonio, I found flights out of San Antonio on the same flight out of Atlanta to Joburg for 950 bucks a person. So simply a quick $300 flight for me and my you know, me and my wife and my son down to San Antonio, a hundred dollar hotel room saved me, you know, $5,000 roughly. So a nice little trick there for future, future travel. And especially when you're starting to go international, um, it's worth it. You That's know. crazy how much money that saved. Right, right. It blew my mind. And for a trip. So, so we should back up a little bit and. Mm -hmm. Let's let everybody know where you went. Right. So, so in case they haven't picked up the last episode yet. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh went to Johannesburg. Well, I went to Kruger National Park, South Africa, uh, for a safari. We were we were on safari for seven days. And uh went, it was just there just just a couple weeks ago actually at this point. So it was a it was a great trip. Um if you want to hear more details about that, we spent oh, a good hour or so talking about all the fun stuff we saw and how the trip was laid out and all the experiences and the different camps that we visited and all that stuff in the previous episode, which dropped on Tuesday, the 16th, right? Or is that wrong? Oh, I'm sorry. Tuesday, the 9th. I apologize. Tuesday, mm -hmm. August 9th is when that episode dropped. So if you want to hear all the details about that, go ahead and go back and listen to that one. Um, but yeah, so sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's true. I mean, if you're flying that far, whether you're flying to San Antonio, Newark, New Jersey or Chicago, it doesn't, it's not really going to matter all that much distance wise. That's pretty minimal in the whole scheme of things, but for, for the wallet that can make a big difference. Right. And what's crazy is we didn't, I, I want to look more into it just cause I'm curious. And when I get something like this in my head, I always just want to try to chase it down, but we literally were on the exact same flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg as I would have been if I flew from Salt Lake city to Atlanta. So literally all I did was fly from San Antonio to Atlanta. It was on the exact same flight and it was that much cheaper. So, you know, who knows what the reason is, but the point is it's definitely worth looking at multiple options because there's some potentially, you know, big dollars there to be to be saved. And I was on Delta, so it didn't matter. I didn't switch airlines. I was on Delta the entire time right, on, on either option. Hmm. So, but which I actually enjoy flying Delta. I fly Delta for work quite a bit and I've had really good luck with Delta. I've tried other airlines to save money and end up being frustrated and not saving near as much as I thought I might with a lot of the fees and the other things that I've experienced. So everybody has their preferences depending on where you're flying from too, you know, has an impact on that. You know, some folks fly United or other airlines because that's what's their home airport is their, the base for that airline, so to speak. So. But but yeah, prepping for that trip was you know, it was a little nerve wracking to be honest for me. 
I was really concerned about what to take. You know, I had no idea what to expect over there. So another key point is to rely heavily on the folks that have been there and the rec- the gear recommend- recommendations that they make. Um, Drew set up this trip for us, so we relied a lot on what he said, and I've had multiple friends that have gone over, gone over there and done safaris. So I reached out to a lot of those folks and asked them, you know, if the gear, I, if my gear kit was was going to be what I should take, and I ended up taking my 400 millimeter, a my two bodies, a 70 to 200, and a 1.4 is essentially all I took. And the other consideration I was thinking about, like when I went to Alaska last year, right, I was I knew I was going to want my backpack in the field, so I used my backpack as my carry on, had all my camera gear on my back. So I could make sure it was safe and you know, with me and that no damage would happen to it. But going to Africa was a little different. You weren't going to need a backpack on these safari vehicles. So I knew I could pack differently. But one of the things that had me nervous was from the last flight we had from Johannesburg to Skakuza was a little a small business jet with no overhead storage, really. I mean, it might fit, fit a small backpack or a you know, laptop bag. But... I didn't want to check my bag or put it underneath the airplane. So I was pretty nervous about that. So I ended up buying a small Pelican, the Pelican, I think it's the Pelican air. It's a really lightweight, smaller Pelican. That's that's will It's a small carry on size, but it still wouldn't fit in the overhead. So fortunately I was one of the only ones that had a case like that getting on the plane. They went to take it from me and I pretty much said, Nope. And walked on the plane and I've learned you have to be a little aggressive sometimes. Sometimes they may tell you no, but I just walked on and the, the gal asked me if I was going to check that. And I said, no, here's a deal. It's got a lot of expensive gear in it. She was super kind to just put it in their little closet they have, which, which you know, some a lot of times they'll do that if they don't have a bunch of people trying to do it. So that worked out for me. I have found that works. Right. It does work. Yeah, I you have just, found that works. That's another little trick to know. And... um you know, at worst case, I was going to try to fit it under my seat, and it would have fit. It had been tight, and I'd have had to have my feet up on top of it. It would have been pretty uncomfortable and miserable, um, but it was a short flight. But anyways, that does work. And worst case, if I needed to check it for that short flight, it was in the Pelican case, which, you know, gave me a little bit more peace of mind. So point is, is everything was safe in that case, and that's all I needed for the trip. And everything I needed lens and camera-wise fit in that small Pelican case. So that worked out so- great. Good. So let me re. So you had two bodies, and yep. you're shooting with the R5 now. Yep. Yep. Um, a 400, a teleconverter, and a 70 to 200. Yep. That was it. Wow. Yep. That's nice. And I thought my I was... back's already saying, "Ooh, that sounds good." <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I thought I was going to need bigger glass, or whatever, and I I never even ended up pointing out the one to four, or one point four. Sorry, the teleconverter. I <laughs> shot with the 400, and I shot with the 70 to 200 way more than I expected. So listen to those folks and the recommendations, you know, don't somebody actually called me and or reached out to me and said, I heard you just been on this trip. And they asked or asked me about gear recommendations. And they said, do you think 500 is going to be too much? And I said, yeah, it's too much. <laughs> just, you know, I mean, there's always a chance you have something that's out there a ways or whatever. But, you know, I did take a couple lion photos that were wider, you know, wider angle landscape type shots from with my 400. But, you know, if that's the look you're going for, then why do you care if you have 600 or 400, you know? Mm-hmm. You can you can make those shots work regardless, I think, depending on how you want to compose them and stuff. So, yeah, I found it worked very, very well for what we were doing. 
Now, you know, and different I areas in Africa, different types of safaris may be different. You know, maybe on the Maasai Mara, you might want to have a 600, you know, with longer reach. I, I don't have any clue, but I just know for where I went on this, you know, in Kruger in South Africa, this kit ended up being perfect. So, well, I think there's a couple of aspects to that. One, you, you need to research who you're going with. You need to make sure that you're going with a, a guide that understands photography, understands where you need to be, and understands that the reach that that's required and that you're not just trying to get snapshots with a cell phone. Um, the other thing is that, yeah, you need to understand your location and what are some of the restrictions that might be within that location. I know some of the places where they have more predators, it's a little bit of a different situation. Um, there's also some really good options out there these days for a 500 or 600. I mean, heck Nikon's coming out with that 800 millimeter. It's like half the weight of the 500 that I have. It's, um, so there are some good options out there these days. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And the folks that are shooting Olympus or other, you know, the four thirds um, sensors and that, you know, you could take pretty much the sky's the limit because their, their gear kits so light and small, you know, so yeah, it's a good point. It really depends on what you're shooting and what, what kind of gear you're shooting to. It also depends what you want to photograph. I would imagine that if you want to photograph birds and granted, I mean, like here in the U S Africa has a wide variety of birds, everything from, you know, small kingfishers to, you know, really large ostrich and birds like that. But if you want to photograph some of the smaller birds, you might need that, that longer reach. You know, Don, that was a, it's a great point. And we brought it up last time and I'm such just a, not a bird thinker that I totally just blow that away and don't think about it. But you're right. If you wanted to photograph birds, you would have definitely wanted to have, if you were focused on birds, I'd say, then you would want to have your 600 or maybe an 800 with a 1.4 even. Uh, we did get quite a few opportunities at birds. We did see a couple bee catchers even. I got a couple photos, but they're nowhere near what they could have been if I'd have had a, you know, a 600 with a 1.4 or something like that. Um, our group wasn't really focused on birds. We took advantage of them when we had them. But that's a great point. If you're, It really de does depend on what you're going over there for too, so... It, yeah, there's a lot of variables involved in what you should do. But I think the key takeaway for me was, you know, know what you're going over there for. Rely on the guides and people that have done those trips before to tell you what kind of gear to take. And then, you know, I, you know, and then decide what you on your own too, what you really think you're going to want. If, you're, if it's really bothering you and you think you might need it and you want to take it, then, you know, then take it. You know, just be prepared to make sure that your gear is safe through the entire trip. And that is something, I mean, even here in the U.S., it's something to consider, but it, and, and not to hound on, on Africa, but I have heard that security can be a, an issue um, in particular, especially since, you know, a lot of these cases, you either can't lock them or, you know, depending upon the airline as to whether you can lock them up. But, right. Yeah, that concerns But I have me. found... I have found in the, in the past that if, if I've been asked to check my, my camera, camera bag, which does fit in an overhead and there are, you know, smaller planes that I've been on, but usually you're, you're handing it to them to put underneath in the belly of the, of the plane. And then you're picking it up as soon as you get off. So if that's the situation, that's probably not too bad, but there have been times where I've been asked, Hey, you know, we're really overbooked and you know, can you check that? And I'm like, mm, Nope. You know, and, and I just explained to them what it, what it is and the value of it. And, you know, is there something we can do with it? Usually they're pretty good about working with you. They don't want that insurance claim. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and if you are going to check bags, just that is a concern depending on where you're going for sure. Um, that's another reason why I checked my clothes bag. Right. I, I carried on my, 
my pelican in a small backpack and then I checked my clothing bag. So I tried to go as light as possible. Um, we did have laundry service in our camps and that, so that made it a little bit easier to, to not to worry too much about taking too many clothes and stuff. Um, but then the only other gear items I'd mention would be, cause I was worried about dust and rain was, you know, I took my lens coat, uh, rain coat for my camera. I never put it on at one time, but I'm glad I had it if I decided I needed it. And, uh, Geez, that's probably about it, really. And a pair of binos. That's something that I think a lot of people may not decide to take, but it came in super handy multiple times. You know, it's not always fun to try to look through one eye through your, with, through your lens and stuff. And uh, it's nice to have a pair of binoculars when you're just wanting to watch something that's a little further out and you're not going to get photos or something. So that's another thing that I didn't mention, I don't think, before that I th- think was a key part of my gear bag that I took with me. What kind of clothing did you take with you? I know in, um, in a, a previous preparation for a trip to Africa, I had heard that you want to avoid things like dark colors. They attract you know, various flying insects. Um, you want to try to stay with some of those lighter colors. Yeah. Uh, we So it was wintertime over there for them, South Africa. And it was, near, it was not near as cold as I expected it to be. You know, we were 45 to 75 degrees on average, you know, for lows and highs, Fahrenheit. And um, we, I never, I, I wore a light jacket. Um, I think one day I actually, they had rain ponchos available for us in the Safari vehicles. I think one day when it rained on us, I put that on just for the rain, really. I didn't even take my own raincoat. Um, it was unseasonably wet over there for that time of the year. So, you know, you always got to be thinking about that regardless, even if it's supposed to be dry. You probably should take some kind of a rain gear or something, right? Especially to protect your camera gear. Because sometimes that's the best shooting, and I wanted to be out shooting in it. I didn't want to be, you know, not having the option to shoot in the rain if it was raining. So um, then the clothing-wise, they didn't really say much, again, because the temperatures were cooler. It's their non, it's their dry season. So we didn't, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, I only saw one mosquito the entire time. <laughs> Um, nice. which I mean, and bug wise, I mean, I don't even think we saw spiders. We saw one snake on the road when we were driving in the vehicle. It was a puff adder. Didn't like bugs and stuff like that were just not a non-issue for us on this trip. Um, as far as inoculations go, um, they do have a list, you know, the, the best thing I learned on this whole thing was prepping was go to your local health department and you can make an appointment, just walk in and sit down with one of the, the advisors and they'll sit down with you, pull out maps, and talk about all the recommendations and why. And for South Africa, there was no requirements. It was all recommendations. And so I was pretty much up on everything that they recommended, um, that you could get a malaria shot a vaccination if you wanted to, or yet they had the option for pills. So we just did the malaria pills, and you know Drew actually told us it's a good precaution. But he he wasn't going to do it just because he knew from his experience that there would be no mosquitoes but that is definitely a malaria area so we just went to the doctor and got a prescription for the pills um for malaria and that was the only precaution we really needed to take and the pills you don't take unless you get it correct no no no. you it's all preventative you take them like four days before you go you start taking them then you take them for the entire trip and then take them for like seven days or four days after i can't remember but okay it's yeah you're, you're just doing it preventively so you just take them but I didn't notice anything. Some of them have side effects and stuff. And the ones I took, I didn't notice anything 
you know, different, to be honest with you. I would just take them every night before I went to bed. I think one of them was drowsiness and it was like, well, great. Make me sleep, help me sleep better. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as far as all, all the other stuff was super easy to get ready. You know, obviously you have to make sure you got your passport and um, there was no other real requirements to speak of. So it was super easy as far as that goes. That's good. Yeah. Well, good. It sounded like you had a really good trip. Yeah, it was great. Go listen to that other episode. We had lots, lots of uh, cool experiences in there. So, what about you, Mike? What kind of prep things did you do for your Arctic trip? So I didn't have to take any gear because I was shooting for someone, so they had all the gear there. So I just had to worry about clothes and snacks and mosquitoes, bugs, and you think you know, and then you get there and you're like. Oh it should be nice if I had this or it should be nice if I had that, or I should have paid more attention to the list of stuff they sent me. But you think you got it figured out as much as you travel. And as much as I go to different places, you pretty much take the same stuff. But what I found on this trip was <clears throat> I started keeping a list of all the stuff that it would sure be nice to have. And that was probably the biggest thing is just keep refining this list. And hopefully you can find stuff that packs well and you just, basically take it everywhere like i didn't take any puffy pants do you guys know what puffy pants are mm -hmm. they're like down pants and we were going to the arctic in the summer so i'm thinking you know 40 to 60 that's fine you don't need to you know as long as you have long underwear you'd be fine but there were some times where i was sitting in a blind for eight hours and it was cold it was seriously cold it would have been a, nice a pair of puffy pants would have been really spiffy so uh I just kept a list of that kind of stuff, but you know, you go up there thinking the bugs are going to be really bad and they were for about a week. And then after that, it got cold and windy and then the bugs didn't exist. So then you're dealing with the cold. So I was totally prepared for bugs, had all the bug shirts, had all the, you know, I don't really use bug dope, but just wear the head nets and basically just put a head net in every bag that I had and had a couple of three or four extras and bought that shirt had some nets that I could put over a blind in case it was really bad. We also use those thermocells. Have you guys ever seen those? Mm -hmm. Those things them. are pretty amazing. Yep. yep. I was, yep. I was really shocked. I mean, they, in a blind, they basically eliminate bugs. Yeah, in a blind, they'll keep everything outside. I've done it with, but then you read on it because you have plenty of time when you're in the blind to, when there's nothing going on. So I'm reading the don't, thing. And just don't read it. You. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think it says, and do you, not read while you're in the Do blind. not use in enclosed areas, yeah. <laughs> That's what it says. And I'm like, ah, is this blind enclosed or is this uh, open, kind of closed? I don't know. Because occasionally that thing will smoke a little bit and it's just whatever it's given off. It's just a heat reaction with some sort of chemically treated pad. But, well, I tell you what, it works good. So as long as there aren't any, there aren't any long-term effects and... Um, you know, just limited exposure to it is okay. I highly recommend those things because it basically, you know, there would be times where it was just, you know, if you had exposed skin, you were going to get bit. But you fire that thing up and, man, within 10 minutes, the blind was clear. And then I'd run it for like an hour and then I'd shut it off. And then once one or two mosquitoes started coming in, I'd turn it on again and it eliminated. So you didn't have to run it 24 seven, but you just had to be mindful. And, and that made it really, 
really doable. And you know, you've if you guys have ever worn a headnet before, they're cool and they certainly help, but it's a pain to shoot through them. You know, or mm-hmm. you'll be sitting in the blind with a headnet on, and did you ever try to eat a candy bar or a stick or something or something? You know, and you're eat like, oh, I got to take this this thing off. So, I mean, that's just stupid little stuff, but. I think the biggest thing for me was, you know, there was tons of water up there. So I had to have water boots and, you know, there's so many things. Are you doing lots of miles? Are you doing little miles? Can you make it with extra tufts or muck boots? Or do you need the the neoprene waders where you wear a wading boot, which is more like a hiking boot, which you can put more miles on, man, it's all that kind of thought process and knowing where you're going to go, but how can you ever know? exactly what you're going to run up against. And I didn't take the muck boots. Fortunately, there was a flight coming in. I was there for 45 days and there was one flight that came in about halfway through and I was able to get a pair of rubber boots put on that plane. So that made it much better in the long run for having stuff to walk in the water. We still had to wear uh, waders in certain places and other places you could get away with a, just a rubber walking boot. So I don't know. I don't think this is helping anybody because I'm so wishy-washy as far as what to take, but they're just so hard to predict all the situations. And I didn't, it's not like an area where a lot of people go, right? So you're just really guessing. But I was totally shocked with how cold it did get, even in the middle of the summer. I mean, there were times where, have you guys ever seen those Arctic oven tents, which is an Alaska style tent, but they actually have a, a wood stove that can be inside of it. So you can burn just a little bit of, it's just a little stove, maybe eight inches by eight inches opening. And you just have a little kindling and you heat that up and it'll heat that tent up pretty good and pretty quick. And we had one of those tents, but we didn't have the stove. So we were thinking, man, that'd be so nice. Cause it got cold enough where there were a couple of nights where you're thinking, man, it would be so nice to take the chill off. But if you get, if you had the right sleeping bag and you had the right situation there, then you can warm up overnight and you'd be fine. So Mm-hmm. A lot of situations like and that. I think it goes back to what we were saying with Ron that, you know, have an idea of what you want to photograph, research the temperatures beforehand, consider that there may be a day or two that, that are outliers on that. Um, you know, n- know what, what your goals are from the trip so that, and know what your comfort level is. You know, there's always times where people recommend, oh, there was this product or that product. But like you said, with head nets, it's, there are limitations with it. Um, I know personally, I'm not a big fan of bug spray and you know, people are like, Oh, I, you know, I use this and I use that. I'm like, no, I, I don't, I try to avoid it. So I'm always looking for other, other products. Like I love to use when I go up to Alaska, I use um, the buff neck rolls that have mm-hmm. the bug spray in them. And I find they work really well because you can just put them up on, you know, as a headband or something that keeps the bugs off your face without having to put of, you know, a lot of bug spray on your skin or, potentially wipe that onto your camera gear not regarding regarding the arctic trip but here recently i've been shooting a lot at a place in alaska where it gets a lot of rain and uh you know i shoot video mostly so i basically have to have both hands free especially when you're trying to run a tripod and focus and all that jazz and it's been raining so much i've been trying to hold an umbrella focus and run a camera it looks like a comedy and um I just recently went down and picked up a tarp. It's more of like a, 
I don't even know what you'd call it. It's not like a blue tarp. It's not like a classic tarp that you would expect and is loud. And it's made of nylon. It's fairly lightweight, but it's made with the grommets. And you basically use walking sticks. And then you set it up. And then you can create a lean-to type of thing. And it's super lightweight and super packs up pretty tight. I found that to be really helpful. And it's something you could just take everywhere, especially if there's any threat of, of rain at all. And if you're shooting lots of video, you kind of need it. Throw a picture of that in the show notes. And then yeah. throw the one with your umbrella in. So Mike sent this picture out to, we have a little group <laughs> chat, you know, with the, with the host. And Mike sent this picture out to us. And Jason said, what is that huge tent for? <laughs> because it looked just filming. like a tent. It did. It did. <laughs> I will say when I first looked at it, I was like, what in the heck has he got going on up there? Yeah. It looks like a giant tent, but it was just Mike's umbrella and it was the angle that it was at, but it, it looks like a big circus tent almost <laughs> that, uh, that he yeah, was filming out of. <clears throat> I did figure out, cause I didn't have the tarp at that time. I did figure out how to strap the umbrella to my video head so that I could be hands-free and still run the camera. And that works as long as there's no wind. You know, if there's wind, it's going to blow the tri or blow the umbrella, which is then going to shake the tripod, which then is going to give you crappy footage. But if there's no wind and you're just trying to prevent the rain, that worked pretty darn good. And I could just strap the umbrella to it. And so that's another thing I take just about everywhere is an umbrella. But a lot of these video cameras we use are they're not a closed system. So like I've seen plenty of people going out with an R5 or a Z9 or whatever. And those things are pretty watertight. I mean, you can sit out and shoot in the rain and really not worry too much at all. But with these video cameras, they actually have a vent in the very top on some of them. And if rain gets in there, you're basically out of business. So you've got to be pretty careful, but you don't want to not shoot in the rain because sometimes you get really cool stuff in the rain. So you got to kind of prevent, the rain from getting in there and be able to shoot whenever that situation exists. So I found the tarp to be pretty cool. There's a similar product that I have from lens coat called a lens hide. That's mm -hmm. kind of, um, it can be a little bit cumbersome sometime, but, but in a case like that, where you really want to be out in the rain, I can see where it would work. It's almost like a baseball cap. It sits on your head, but it, then it becomes this kind of triangular tent around you. Really? And it has kind of openings. Yeah. I've used that a couple of times, especially when I'm in down south where the, you know, the, there's a lot of rain in the wintertime. Um, and that's worked pretty well. It can get a little bit hot in there, but up, up someplace in Alaska, I could see that being being an easy, easy product to use. That's perfect. Plus, I was yeah. thinking of something like that because that would be, if you it's could an easy wear like a hat as well. and then mm -hmm. throw it out over the camera. Because I'm using a monitor a lot of times. I'm not even using a viewfinder. So I have to... It's not like you can get a traditional camera cover and put it over that because you're still trying to look at a monitor. So something that you could just throw over would be. And I've done that before with coats. Yeah. But if you had something that was bigger and almost like a poncho, that would be pretty cool. It, it's exactly like that. It's mm -hmm. exactly like it kind of sits on your head. So wherever you go, it moves with you. And it does pack down. I want to say it's maybe about a foot wide, maybe about six inches tall and a rectangular. So it packs within itself um and then i've actually used that as a tarp to lay on too because it ha is a, has a waterproof lining on the inside so if i'm not using it over me i can use it to lay on the ground as well so let me but just I can send a picture for the show notes on that yeah if you would that would be great so i one thing i did while i was up there is i kept a list of things that would be nice to have that i didn't bring because i know i'll be doing this again 
and I want to go back to this list. And you don't think about these things till you actually need them, or you don't think about these things, or what you do is you're up there and you're like, oh, if I only had this, it would be great. And I generally have all this stuff. It's just I didn't pack it and take it. I didn't take hiking boots because we took camp shoes, which are just basically Crocs, and then all this water walking type stuff with either neoprene waders or the rubber boots, right? But there were times where a hiking boot would have been pretty cool to have, especially later as most of the water was gone as far as certain walking areas. There was still a lot of wetlands, so you still were going to have to deal with water. But there was times later on when the, when ice had melted and snow had melted where you could actually walk a couple miles and you, a hiking boot would have been just fine. So multiple hats. I wore the same hat every day for 45 days. That gets a little <laughs> stinky. So I'm thinking a couple of two or three hats would have been pretty nice to have and just switch them around and wash them and that sort of thing. I already talked about the puffy pants. That would have been a game changer for sitting in those blinds because I was freezing. Have you guys ever seen the puffy booties? Mm-hmm. Those would have been for really sleeping. Cool. Well, you could do them for sleeping for sure. But even in the blind, I think the reason my feet were getting so cold in the blind, it was cold. It wasn't cold, cold. It wasn't like we're below 30 but you're probably in the 30s 40s even higher 40s if you're sitting there and it's just steady all day in rubber boots your feet sweat and then that that sweat gets cold and then your feet get cold if i could have just taken those rubber boots off and put in little puffy boots or those puffy booties that would have been pretty cool to have and they're so lightweight to pack it's not like it's gonna i mean they're probably not even half a pound that's so, what I was just thinking. I mean, they, they crunch down really well. And then as soon as you get to where you are, yeah, open them up so that that down can fluff back up in them. Yep. The other thing I put on here were ener- energy drink tablets. So mm-hmm. in our camp, we were basically just drinking water, water and coffee. We had tons of coffee and then basically water. And we were just filtering our, our water every day. But 45 days of just water, you just find yourself jonesing for something. And I thought, well, if you could get those little tablets that have that, I don't know, it's not Gatorade, but a Gatorade, like what do they call that stuff that they put in the Gatorade or what is Gatorade for? It's got all the electrolytes, electrolytes, something like that would have been nice and add a little flavor to the water. So, I mean, that's kind of a nice thing to have and that would be small to pack. So it's not needed 100%. Powder mix can work well for that too. I've done that in Alaska. You know, just put yeah. in little Ziploc bags. You don't need to bring the whole container, but just in a Ziploc bag, and then you can just use it as you need it. Yep. Uh, I put I take batteries with me the charge to charge my phone and that sort of thing. But I this time I just took a couple of great big ones. One that would run a computer, but I thought that'd be cool because I can charge my phone up three or four times on one charge. But what I found was I'd be in that blind for eight nine, 10 hours. And I wasn't taking those batteries with me to the blind because I'm taking all kinds of camera equipment. The last thing I want to do is put in a heavy battery because I'm already taking tons of other batteries, right? So I think a smaller little battery, a one-time charge on your phone or something would be nice to have. And then, you know what? This is kind of corny, but a mirror would have been awesome. To go 45 (laughs) days without, I tried my phone, you know, you try it because it looks like you got, I don't know, dirt on your face or I don't know what the situation was. You got like a mustache hair that's tickling your nose and you can't find it or whatever. I'm like, man, a mirror would be just the ticket. But 
Nobody in Camp Pablo. caribou out there. <laughs> yeah, no, it was just more for like cosmetic, not cosmetic stuff, but just annoying stuff that you're like, God, it'd be super nice if I could just see what's going on here. <laughs> so anyway, that's pretty much all the stuff that I added as add-ons to what I already had. And all that stuff is so small, other than the hiking boots. Uh, most of that stuff is pretty easy to pack, and I could have easily fit it in just because I wasn't taking it. Is there anything you wouldn't have taken? I did take two sleeping bags because I wasn't sure, and I only ended up needing one, so I could have got rid of one. The colder of the two or the warmer of the two? I could have got rid of the colder of the two. So (laughs) I cheated there, though, too. So I think I have like a 30-degree bag, and then I had the one that was a zero-degree bag. But I was at Costco the day before I left, and they had these, like, thermal blankets that's almost like a... What do they call that stuff that's in the jackets nowadays? Thermaloft or what is the down like stuff? Hollow fill or hollow yeah. fill or whatever. There's a couple different brands. Primaloft. Yeah, yeah, it was a blanket made out of that stuff, and it was super lightweight. It's twenty bucks at Costco, and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna buy that and take it. And that with my thirty degree bag was perfect, so I didn't need to take the extra bag. But something that else that works that well either. for um, that I take when I go backpacking are silk liners. The silk sleeping bag liners. Yeah. They can add, I think they add up to like 10 degrees of warmth. And they're, they pack super, super small and they're light. Yeah. And I did take a cot. I was the only one in camp that had a cot. So I felt kind of, <laughs> but have you ever seen those little backpacking cots? They're pretty dang small and they don't weigh a ton, but they're yeah. really, they're kind of spendy. But for that amount of time, it was kind of nice to sleep on a cot every night. And we did, they did provide nice thick mattress pads that we slept on. So the cot with the mattress pad and then my, my sleeping bag and my little blankie, I was, it was just perfect. Blankie. Blankie. Does it wow. have a name yet? <laughs> no, I didn't name it yet, but I did take it to the blind with me every yeah. now and then. Cause I was thinking, man, if I had a sleeping bag, there were a couple of other people in the camp that were just taking their sleeping bag with them to the blind. But mm-hmm. I never did that. So I think that's all I can think of. I did take my, I have two little small umbrellas. I took two umbrellas. I probably only needed one, but they were just, you know, you just, you're working with a hundred thousand dollar cameras. You just gotta, you don't want to have to stop shooting because it starts to rain. If we can just whip out a little umbrella that helps. So I had that. You're up there to capture the photos and the video. You need to make sure the equipment works. That's probably priority number one. Exactly. So other than that, I can't really, I'll probably think of something else along the way, but that's pretty much all I had. So Don, we've avoided this as long as we can. (laughs) I know Mike (laughs) still wants to know. I was wondering if we're going to skip past it or what, but something went down and I got a couple of messages like, whoa, something happened and it wasn't happening to Ron. It happened to somebody else. Yeah, this is the first time. Me really curious. This is the first time on a podcast that we've ever aired an issue in the field where it didn't happen to Ron. So, <laughs> Don, while I feel for you, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone, I'm glad it didn't happen to Ron, and I had to explain <laughs> it again. Since we're talking about prep, you know, one thing that I do keep, I always keep in my in my car is I keep. Actually, there's two things I always keep in there. I always keep my muck boots. And I always keep my waders um, and I have a, you know, a, a nice pair of waders that have hiking boots. Um, 
so that I can you know, really kind of get out. Well, I was working on an article this morning um, about a, it was a fishing class and there was this, I think it was a father with his, I don't know, she was probably about three years old. She was absolutely adorable. And I'm like, I really want to get a photo from across the river and I've, I've got my waders on and I didn't have the muck boots. I had switched cars um, temporarily. We had a golf ball hit the windshield of our car last week. I've had just an unbelievable couple of weeks lately, but a golf ball hit our windshield and basically destroyed the windshield. So I had to switch cars and I didn't move my muck boots in, but I moved my waders in. And if I had had my muck boots, I wouldn't have had the, the height to do what I did. So I would have prevented this whole thing, but the, um, but I had the waders on. So I was like, you know, I'm going to get in the water. So I was along the Colorado river. I'm going to get in the water and I wanted to get just this really cute shot of this girl fishing, you know, her first time out fly fishing. And, um, I hit a soft spot in the river. There was a bend in the river, um, that had, it just felt like silt in my, under my feet and it just sucked my foot in and then I'd lost my balance. And next thing I know I'm underwater. Um, probably it was cold. And that was the first thing it was, it just took my breath away. So when I came up, I was under, I, I was hair soaked, everything. soaked. so, and the other dangerous thing is that the, then the waders fill. Um, so the, the river's kind of rushing by, we've had a lot of rain here in Colorado, so we don't have the snow melt, but we've had a lot of rain. So it was, it's, it's pretty, it's muddy. That's part of the reason right now why I couldn't see the bottom. Normally it would be clear, but it's muddy and it's flowing pretty good. And I couldn't, I just could not get my feet under me. Whatever I was on was just so soft and me scrambling with my feet probably made it worse. Um, so twice my camera, lens, me, everything completely submerged. So by the time I finally got up, got out, um, needless to say, all my stuff is now sitting in rice and we'll be getting shipped back to Nikon probably tomorrow. But, um, so yeah, so that's a, that's a first for me. Um, I'm usually pretty good in water and it's, it was embarrassing in front of, I still remember that once I got myself out, the first thing I did was look at the woman that was coordinating it and like, oh my God, she's going to be so mad at me. Second thought was I just scared any, any fish that might have been there are just gone now. And this is a fishing class. And then the third thing I did was, um, I remember looking at that girl and her eyes were like a thousand times bigger than what they should have been. And I was, she was just staring at me and I guess she was kind of nervous, but so I kind of brushed myself off and got out and, um, you know, kind of tried to gather my, my ego that I just left behind in the river that just floated down, down into, into the reservoir down Grand Lake. But, um, yeah, so that's, so I am now struggling to figure out, I don't have, so I had sold some of my old gear in preparation for switching to mirrorless. So that was the only body that I had at the moment. So I'm kind of out of, out of gear at the right now. Um, it was my kind of my mid-length lens, which is next to my 500, my most used lens. So that's also sitting in rice. Um, that's I'm hoping that's probably fine, but I didn't. I don't have any other body to check it on. So first lesson learned is always have two bodies. You just, like I said, I've been trying to figure out what what mirrorless system I want to go with. You know, whether I want to stay with my current system or switch to a different one. No matter what I go with, it means investing in new lenses and. Um, so it's, so that's kind of where I am today. I'm trying to decide if, 
do I just replace the same body and just kind of, you know, I can pick that up today or do I switch to just do what I was going to do anyway and just bite the bullet. And I don't know, there's a, there's so many things in there, but like I said, preparation wise, one, if I had had my muck boots, I would have avoided the whole thing. I'd be out shooting tomorrow morning because those elk are still shedding their velvet right now. And it's killing me to know I can't get out there. I only have another day or two left of that. So that's, that's one painful thing. And, um, tomorrow night, the auroras are supposed to be really good here in Colorado. And somebody is, I mean, we're supposed to have a six tomorrow night here in Colorado. And that usually means we can see them. So, um, I don't know. So yes. So, so Mike, that was, yes, that was, that was me today. Um, the clothes are all still hanging up in the bathroom. That's how wet they were. This was probably about 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock this morning. And yeah, the clothes were absolutely drenched. They are still drying. Um, so, so were you wearing a wading belt on your no. waders? No. Oh my. It, it, yeah. That's what I mean. I, it, it, that is if it just, it was so many things that I normally do not do just, Oh, I had, the, I had the belt with me. It was in the pocket. Um, oh, that's a good place. As a matter of fact, about 20 minutes before I got into the river, I had actually taken my cell phone out of the pocket on the waders because I was like, oh, it's kind of warming up. I'll just put it in my jacket pocket. So I thankfully did not have my phone on me. Um, but then I remember mention, making a comment. I had left the zipper open. I'm like, oh, I better zip this up so I don't lose my belt. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, um, just for people that are listening, if you don't know, these, if you're wearing chest waders, it comes with a belt that you wear on the outside. You know, what it's for is if you do go under, if you're wearing a belt that's cinched up somewhat tight around your body, it keeps water from just totally filling up your waders because that can lead to some pretty disastrous situations. Yeah. If, if you're in deep, deep water and you fall in and your waders fill, that's all that weight. You figure eight pounds per gallon. And I don't know if you got big waders, you could probably fit several gallons in your waders, depending on how big they are. And that could lead to a pretty disastrous situation. Did you have any sort of boot or are you just walking in the neoprene booties? Or no, I have, um, no, I have the, the regular boots, the hiking boots. Well, they're okay. like hiking boots. Yeah. So yeah, it's like a wading boot. So you put on the neoprene yeah. waders, then you put on that boot. So you did have that boot on. It was just the silty, yeah. silty bottom that just yeah. didn't provide no, any I had structure. The... Yep. Wow. Shouldn't have gone in. I knew it was muddy. I shouldn't have gone in because of that. I shouldn't have gone in um, without the belt on. And... Okay, so can I tell you what I would do? I wouldn't send your camera back to Nikon because that's just going to be a waste of time. I would use that for a future viral video because it'll look <laughs> great. It just won't work. So you can do some sort of skit with that and it'll be really awesome and you'll make your money back off of that. I would go with the mirrorless. Cause there's no sense of going backwards. You're already going, you are already going to make that leap anyways. Just do it. Cause you'll be happy to have the new technology. That's what I would do. I've had cameras go like that, go in. Not fortunately it's been my gear, but it was never me that did it. It was always people that I was working with. I would let them borrow a lens or I would one way or the other. It was never me. It was always my gear that went underwater. And I remember a 3028 that was mounted to a kayak that's pretty dumb, right? But we did it and it went underwater and we thought, ah, oh, this thing will work. And I sent it to Canon and Canon sent a letter back saying, you know, it'd be cheaper to buy a new lens than it would be to fix this one. But it looks awesome. So that was my plan is just to use that lens as a 
uh, to make a viral video where it, you know you act like you get mad at something or whatever, and you pick it up off your tripod <laughs> and chunk it across into a canyon or something. Well, and I will say that this lens is the one that I use a lot for hiking. It's an eighty to four hundred, so it gives me you know I can do wide angles versus and, and zoom in. It's heavy for that, but. Um, but it's worked really well. Well, it, because I hike with it so much, it does tend to get banged around a little bit more. Um, and it's been repaired. Gosh, I think it's been, re- this will be, it's either third or fourth time going back. So at this point, I mean, I've spent more money on repairing the thing and we're going to uh, edit that out. So the insurance company doesn't hear just in case they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, Good point. <laughs> so you're thinking about switching to mirrorless. You're a Nikon shooter, so that means you're probably using a D850 or something like that, which means your next step up would be going to the Z series, right? So you do have like a Z9 or something like that. Z9, but I step. can't get the Z9 by tomorrow. So that's more of a... You can get an R5 or an R3 by tomorrow. <laughs> I know. I Well, so there's four that I've looked at. I mean, I am looking at all, all systems. Um, and... Z9 makes the most sense because I'm already in Nikon. I'm already familiar with the menus. I'm already familiar with everything on it, but I can't get that tomorrow. I already have the lenses. I mean, technically I could get the adapter and use, you know, build the lenses over time. Um, so, and the other thing is I could go out tomorrow and get a D850 and be out shooting the Auroras tomorrow night. If I, even if I go out and get an R5, I would probably get the 100 to 500 and I can't shoot the Auroras tomorrow night. So, so like, I get it. It's, it's, and, and I have an assignment. I know I have at least one assignment already next Wednesday that I don't know if, if I switch, I'm not going to have, I'll only have one lens at this point. So I wouldn't have a wide angle lens for, for an assignment next week. Well, how much is an eight D850? They run, I think Too they run much about 2,700. Yeah. If you're going to just turn around and sell it. I mean, I, Quite I mean, honestly, I love, the, I love that body. I mean, oh, I absolutely love it. And for I landscape stuff, that. I would love to keep it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't have any interest in getting rid of it. And I've actually been considering getting a second D850 to go with this one. I just, now I'm right back to the same situation where I, you know, I actually need to buy two bodies now. So, well, hmm. Going with what Mike said, I mean, you, you kind of prepped us with this before we started and we just decided that we were going to answer it on the air. And I think, you know, my, my first thought was the same as Mike, you're going to move forward anyway. Um, go ahead and do it. I don't disagree with you. However, that the D850 is a phenomenal body, still a phenomenal body and very capable body. Uh, so if you could find one used or find one to borrow for a few days, I, you know, that would be a good solution. But uh, I think I would go ahead and move forward at this point. You kind of have some money saved up already from the sounds of things because you've been selling off your old gear in preparation for that move. And I, I, I guess there's no better time to make it than when you have to. <laughs> Yeah. And really, I mean, yeah, it'd be cool to shoot the Aurora, but which iPhone do you have? Or do you have an iPhone? Mm-hmm. You have a 13. I shot I, I shot Aurora up here with my 13, and they turned out okay. Oh, okay. Sitting under the Arctic Circle. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you can do that with a two-second exposure down here. You got to go 20. 
<laughs> I don't know. I think <laughs> I'm going to make some calls for you. It still wouldn't. Even if we could find one that we could get for you, it still wouldn't happen tomorrow. Because right. it's just shipping and all that jazz. So I don't know. So And the Z9, that's the new flagship Nikon, right? Mm-hmm. So a buddy of mine shooting that up here, and it is pretty sweet. Yeah, that's, so a, that's... a lot bigger than I thought. You know, I thought it was going to yeah, be smaller. That was the... that was one reason I wanted to go to mirrorless was I wanted to I wanted to reduce some of the weight in my bag. Um, and the Z9 is still a pretty bulky, pretty mm-hmm. bulky body. But man, the things I'm hearing of eye tracking on that just are unbelievable. Yeah, the sure. buddy that I have up here is just loves it. Just can't say enough good things about i know it. people you know at 20 frames a second i know people that are saying they're getting 18 19 sharp frames out of it with the eye tracking but but that's not unique to nikon you're getting those kind of performances out of the r5 the r3 the a1 they all have the eye tracking yeah, I know the they're A1. all really good mm-hmm. so yeah don't let that be your deciding factor is what i'm saying i mean if you want to stick with nikon absolutely just don't let that be the deciding factor because all those other bodies do that just as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know the A1, I've it's probably most seriously looking at, at the capabilities of that. Of course, that's the most expensive mirrorless out there right now. Um, it's also um, completely different menu system. So that's not, you know, out of the box running with it. That's going to take some time to get get familiar with it and we are getting into elk rut season so <laughs> i will that matters yeah but that'll be really i don't fast. mean to sound like i'm obsessed with the elk rut but but that is it's a big bulk of my my photography each year so well you but we I can be obsessed with the elk rut that's okay we can <laughs> we can be obsessed yeah. coming from a fellow obsession person. yeah exactly <laughs> uh, i wouldn't worry about the menus don't let that be the hold up either they're all no. fairly I have Sony, Canon, and Nikon, and I can manage them. I mean, I'm not great at any of them, but I can figure it out fairly quickly. Enough you to could shoot. You can spend time at night sitting at home, setting up your custom menus, and then you don't have to worry about any of it because it's already done. You just go on custom one, custom two, custom three. And there's already yeah, until people you out send there it back those. for a repair and it sets it back to default. Well, can't <laughs> you save all your settings? There's YouTube videos out for everything. Now what? that D850, you can't. Nikon's never. What about the Z9? Can you do it with the R5? Can you save all your settings to a card? Yes, you can. To an yeah, SD. I think yeah. all the near new mirrorless, you'd be able to do that. So once you got, if you went with the new mirrorless, oh, okay. you'd be able to save your settings. So even if it did get a factory reset, you'd be okay. I don't know. I will certainly help you with some calls, though, just to see if somebody can finagle one somehow. But I guess it depends on what you want to go with, too, right? So. Do the old Nikon lenses work on the new Nikon mirrorless? With the adapter, but I have heard that. And I, I need to figure out, I don't know what the condition is now of the 80 to 400. I would imagine that's probably fried too, but. Um, Those are pretty decently priced lenses though, right? And they're super yeah. sharp. So, I mean, you could probably pick one of those up, not too terribly expensive. They were more reasonable than. It just Most. it goes back to do you take the chance do you do you put the money towards buying older gear because you know it works or do you put the money towards something new and well does Nikon even have anything new like that in that yeah, range? Yeah, they do. 
Mm-hmm. They have a new one to four hundred. They have, yeah, a couple different lenses. I know they got the new four hundred that they're coming out with. It's not released yet, and they got that eight hundred. It's coming, but yeah, yeah that eight hundred sounds really, really sweet. Are there and... any out yet? Because the guy I was shooting with in the Arctic had yeah. an eight hundred. There, there was... are some in the field. Yep, I think uh, there are. One. Oh, okay, and it isn't. I I couldn't believe how small it was for one. It's small. Yeah, right? the physical it's like size is small. It's like they're 500 pf. It's a, the 500 is about the size of a 70 to 200, and the 800 is a, about the size of a Canon 100 to 400. I mean, weight wise, it's very yeah. But very size low. wise, it was like a 300 to 8. So it wasn't. You remember the mm-hmm. old 800s were really long lenses, yep. right? This was fairly short because I didn't believe that it was an 800. And then I picked it up, and that thing is super lightweight. So, I don't know. I guess 100 to 400 Nikon and the Z9, and you're golden. And take pictures tomorrow night with your iPhone on a tripod. I do have a friend that um, she has some Nikon gear, and she she unfortunately just hurt her knee. So, I know she's not going out too much right now. Maybe, maybe I can bring over a... I think she was requesting a stiff drink to help her get through it. Maybe I can do that in a good ice pack. And I go. do have a D500 in Colorado that you could use. Hmm, that might not be a bad idea. They weren't bad. Mm-mm. No, they weren't. It just sits I on think the next shelf. to the D850, that's probably the... You know, I think now is a good time to apologize for making you give me that um, silicon housing back prior to... <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> I thought about that le- earlier today too I was like hmm uh, just spread Sorry. that wound open and yeah <laughs> I know it's too soon but you better explain yeah. that because some people listening might not know what, so, what you're talking about Dawn had had some shots that she had envisioned and uh, I had a not fish shots. <laughs> Not this shot in particular. No, um, some shots of of big game actually that she'd envisioned that she wanted some over under uh, coverage of, and so I lent her my Autex housing, which is just a it's a silicon covering for the body, and then you can get different, um, basically different lens mounts, and it it's watertight. It's silicon. You don't have a lot of full control over the uh, the camera controls, but you, if you set it up, as long as you set it up on dry land before you head to the water, you're good. And so Don had that for about a year, I think. It was getting pretty close. Yeah, it was about nine, nine ten months. Yeah, and it was she a while. was, I, I had given her a jab over a, a podcast and she heard it. So she came up for the outdoor writers, uh, national outdoor writers conference in Casper, Wyoming. And she brought my housing back. Well, that was only what done a couple months ago. It or, was in May. <laughs> no, it was. Yeah. So it was a couple months ago. It was in May. And, uh, so I have it back and Don sure could have used it today. And yeah. <laughs> but if she didn't put on her waiting belt, I doubt she would have put a wait. <laughs> the housing a cover on her camera right you know i will say that we were talking about the the waders and so when i when i worked for the game and fish we had a lot of uh, swift water rescue and and water rescue training because we're in boats all the time if you get in the water your waders fill up 
initially. Now, this is in still water in a lake. This is not in a river because that's going to be a whole different thing. But initially, as your waders fill up, it's going to pull you down. But once they're full of water, you can actually swim inside your waders. So you still have hope. Well, you can do that. And I would think you could just un- unlatch the hooks. Too, yeah, you can. So they just yep. fall off. Swim out of them. Um, that's why I always have neoprene waders because it's like wearing a flotation device. So when you go in with neoprene on, even if they fill up, you're going to, you're going to float and they're hotter and they're not as, not as comfortable to walk in. But for that reason and that reason alone, um, I would suggest strongly neoprene versus uh, Gore-Tex. They are definitely not handy to pack, however, so... If that's a consideration, then make sure you wear your waiting belt. But Don, I'm glad you're glad you're okay, and that didn't get any worse than it already was. Well, let's let's do one thing real quick while I'm on the. We'll do this live, actually. Let's see if um. Uh oh. Phew. I needed so I had mentioned right before we got on this call that I was in the middle of finishing up something. Well, I had my cards. I wasn't sure what was going to happen with the cards. I mean, I, I was still out there. I still have an assignment to write. I mean, that's why I was out there. So I still need to edit those photos. And I was like, please let those cards be okay. So I, you know, I pulled those out of the camera right away. So they weren't sitting in there. Um, but they, they both do work. So. Yeah. I've had good luck with cards on all the cameras that have gotten dunked. The cards still work, but yeah. the cameras generally don't. Well, I shouldn't say they don't work. They do work, but they don't, they do kind of screwy things. <laughs> Yeah, I had a client that last year that had a, a camera go in water, and Nikon was able to send it back to her. Um, I believe she's still using it, so um, I know it can happen, but the the chances of it usually aren't pretty good. <laughs> so, and the cards you said they work, do work, are they good. Work. Yeah, and what brand are the cards? <laughs> they are Sony XQDs. <laughs> Uh, they're the did you throw them in rice at all or were they you said they were i did actually okay no i did throw them in a little ziploc bag of rice and then blew them out to get the dust off from them so i may mark them as backup cards and maybe not rely on them moving forward but i think that would be a safe move yeah you didn't try to turn on your camera did you it was on already because i was shooting oh that's right yeah. Yeah, that is something I, I, I know that, you know, you don't you don't turn it on. You don't don't mess with things. I pulled the battery out right away. Right. Um, as soon as I got home, I mean, it was an hour and a half before I got home. But, um, you know, I threw, you know, there it's sitting in rice now. I did realize I forgot to take the um, my L bracket off of off the body. So I, I have, I'm actually going to have to unpack it and, <laughs> and pull that off and put it back in. But. Yeah, so. It happens. I know it happens. It it's, is. Yep. It's a tool, unfortunately right? Unfortunately, it does. Um, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. The the insurance I have. I mean, that's another. That's another thing. You know how important photo. You know, insurance for your gear is. Um, so it's. I will go through through all that process and add another thing on the to do list. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> The highs and lows. You didn't want to have to deal with right now. That's for sure. No, no, it's not. 
but there's never a good time for it. So. And I will say that water was cold. I was shocked at how cold it was. <laughs> yeah, you're still probably coming off snow up there, right? I mean, the- well, like I said, there's been rain the last couple of days, mm. and it—I mean, the outside temperature was only you know mid fifties. So, yeah. So yeah, it's it's not warm. Wear your belt on waders. Exploring the highs and lows of photography on the Nature Photographer Podcast. <laughs> back to back to preparing for your trips right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean there's there's you know yeah the other just... thing too i will mention i am like i said i didn't have my my car so i didn't have my usual stuff with me i do typically keep a pair of socks t-shirt sweat or a sweatshirt in the car. I don't always keep an extra pair of pants, but that's probably not a bad idea. Um, I usually do keep a, like a small duffel bag of just things to change into for that reason. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to get stuck in a rainstorm or, or whatever the case might be. Um, you know, I did have an hour and a half drive back in, in wet clothes. And um, if it had been a colder day or if, if I was maybe an hour and a half off on the trail, you know, walking back in that, that could have been a different situation with hypothermia. So, mm-hmm. so there are other things that, you know, from a preparation standpoint that you always want to kind of keep in mind. That's no fun to drive an hour and a half, but all you think about is what you probably are replaying that whole event, the whole hour and a half, right? Oh, and <laughs> like I said, it's just, the weather's been really cool. We've had all these, you know, you're driving. I, all I kept hoping was, you know, please don't let that big bull with, you know, the shedding velvet come walking across the road out of the fog on the road. And thankfully that didn't happen, but I had to kind of keep my blinders on. Don't, don't look at what you're missing. And, mm-hmm. Don't get yeah, distracted. Huh. So. Well, let's help you try to figure out what to replace this with. Yeah, there's, like I said, I mean, there's, there's three things I would love to go with. I just, I'm not completely sold on one. I mean, if I could get the Z9 today, I really don't have the money to buy the Z9 right now, but you know, if I could get that, that would make the most sense, but I can't. So it's not going to happen. Yeah. Everybody I know that's got a huge yeah, everybody that I know has a huge waiting list for the Z9. You know, it's 100 plus people still yep. waiting for them. So, but. yeah, it's, I mean, being an MPS member will help some, but it still, still doesn't solve the, the issue of, of assignment work next week. And so I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there, but if you were a CPS professional member, they would send you, they would ship you one overnight tomorrow that's a fact yep uh, there is they'd a, ship, I they'd, mean, sit the, you, they'd ship you a body and a lens yeah there is a difference between the two professional services i mean a a pretty good size difference nikon i could never even get them to call me back and canon is super responsive you're always going to get someone and depending on what level that you are with the Canon professional services, they could have you a, a camera overnighted. Hmm. So well, can you do a lens rentals? Can you just rent one for a couple of weeks? Yeah. That was something else I did consider while I figure out what's going on with 
with what I have. Mike's can, Mike's to about to tell you his pro tip on lens rentals. <laughs> I don't know if they have mm. Z9s available to rent, but that's a, that's a way to do it. <laughs> yeah, if you get Probably, if you get one, so. just choose the buy option rather than yeah, send keep, it back. You can do the keeper price and then keep it if you like it. She's already that's looking it up. She's, she's looking. 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 <laughs> Let's see. I bet it's not. And if they know it is actually. Really? Oh, but it's not available till the end of September. Oh, oh. it's rented out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine that has it's the same thing. It's gonna have a long list. Um let's see what the other one has. Oh, this their website actually looks the same. I wonder if they bought each other. Um Hmm. If it is available for rent, let's see. Push huh. the button. <laughs> Overnight delivery. Select rental dates. It says it's available. Oh, it's not available over the weekend. Oh, that's. It looks like it's all all weekends. It is if you buy. I'm, it. I'm sure. I'm sure we could have you in our. <laughs> R3 and R5 tomorrow or the next day. Hmm. Yeah, Z9 is available for rent. But not till September, end of September. <laughs> on, on one on one company's site, the other one it is available. Oh, it is available. Can you choose a buy option? I don't I don't see that. I don't see a um They don't include that till you get your paperwork after you've rented it. Uh Oh, okay. So when you get your receipt, it'll have a keeper price or it's all the electronic stuff. So after you get your email and you're getting ready to return it, you can click on keeper price and it'll tell you how much it'll cost just to buy it. Hmm. <laughs> this is coming to you live, folks, from the right. Nature <laughs> Photographer Podcast. Live action. <laughs> hey, I don't remember my login code. Which I can I can figure that out. That's no big deal. But um, all right, I'll, I'll take care of this. I don't. But that's that was something I had thought of. Um, was just renting that. If you did get the R five, you could just get the kit lens too with it, so like twenty four to one hundred five, and then buy the one hundred to five hundred, and you'd be good to go. Yeah, I did see that when I was doing some research earlier today. I did see that kit, and I was like, that's not that's not a bad one. And at 24, I could photograph the Milky or the Aurora's. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but it, would, it still wouldn't be here. Well, it would depend if I could get it, pick it up in a local store. Yeah, it's like a 24 f 4.5, isn't it? So it would, wouldn't be great for astrophotography, but you could do it. No, but the ISO on that's got to be pretty. It it, must it's be not bad. Handle. Yeah, it's pretty good. And yeah. then there's Topaz, so you don't have to worry about it after yeah. that. And I, I am a definite <laughs> fan of Topaz. So. Mm -hmm. so, yes, that's where I am today. I was headed up to do a shoot one time, and I had put my camera bag in, but I had I had been photographing some, uh, oh, the spray croppers, whatever, crop sprayers, the airplanes, the biplanes. And I, so I had just had it in the back of my vehicle in case I had to stop again and I left it open 
And I asked my son, because I got home and then we were leaving immediately to a family reunion. And then I was going to do a shoot up in the mountain. And I asked my son to grab the bag. Oh. And he grabbed it and the camera came out and it popped the, it popped the mount, broke the lens, popped the mount off the body also. So a similar result. This one was fixable, however, but... Yeah, my son felt terrible, and it definitely was not his fault. He did just exactly what I asked him to do. But I I know the gut-wrenching feeling that's going through right now because I had the same one. But it, um, you know, honest, well, it's a... It's, we all could share a lot of those little lessons. You know, yeah. always zip your bag up yeah. when you put the gear back in, always check yeah. the bags that, that it zipped when you pick it back up. Always, always put your waiter belt on. Um, <laughs> yeah. The crazier thing is, is that I, this wasn't the first time I had, I did this type of shot this morning. The earlier one, I was like, no, I better do the right thing. Mostly because I was thinking, I don't want to scare the fish. You know, that's what they're there for. So I walked all the way down, crossed the bridge, came all the way back over on the other side of the river and, and just kind of sat on the bank instead. And of course, I get out of the water. I'm like, I should have just done what I did earlier. <laughs> it was OK then. Why wasn't it OK now? But mm. anyway, I'll never forget that little girl, the expression on that girl's face. So. <laughs> she just she had this little pink jacket on and she just had her eyes were so big. Tomorrow will be a better day. All right. Well, I guess on that note, let's, we have, um, why don't we kind of wrap up for today and you guys can kind of get back to, I've got to download these photos before something else happens, (laughs) get them sent off to the paper. And then, um, I guess I will catch up with you guys next month when we have, I've got a couple of guests lined up and we'll have some, some exciting conversations with some, some new folks. And I do want to give a shout out, um, since this is a Nampa podcast, um, I mentioned at the beginning that, that I have finished my term as president. I want to give a shout out to Beth, Beth Hunting, who is our, our next president. Um, she's going to do a phenomenal job and she is hard at work on a lot of new initiatives and carrying over a lot of initiatives that she was helping me on already. She was, she was my VP for the last year. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what she, she has, what she will accomplish in the next year so. For anyone that's interested in learning more about Nampa, I would recommend going to nampa.org. I also want to remind everybody that we do have our first in-person summit event next May in Tucson, Arizona. So that'll be the first time that we're holding an in-person summit, which is our biannual conference for um, for any nature photographer. You don't have to be a member. Um, So I would definitely recommend taking a look at that. That should be I'm anticipating a lot of people since it'll be the first time since before COVID that we'll, we'll have this type of event. Um, so I know they have a lot of um, photo opportunities before summit, after summit. And then we have a lot of in the field photo opportunities um, at the beginning and end of each day as well. So, you know, it, it'll be a really pretty time of year. There's a lot of things with night photography and blooming flowers and hummingbirds and other, other local local wildlife. So it should be a really, really good, good event. So I would stay tuned, keep an eye out on the Nampa website for details about speakers and other events that we'll have planned while we're there. So other than that, if you guys are good, then I would say good night and we will catch you on the next episode of the nature photographer podcast. Bye.